Hello, everyone. Wow, that really came on quick. That's the fastest it's been all year. So welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Monday, December the 19th edition. Uh, special uh, night here is uh, we have Chip Redman on. Uh, we're going to be talking about fire weather and fire meteorology tonight. Um, as many of you guys know who live here in the southeast, we've uh, really had a, a severe drought in, in much of the area and along with uh, there's dry conditions and some gusty winds and, and dry fuels. We've seen a lot of wildfires, especially in November. And so um, Chip's going to be joining us tonight to kind of talk to us about uh, how to fight these fire or how these fires uh, were, were fanned by the weather and fueled by the weather and, and just how difficult they are to, to manage on, on dry uh, days like that. So uh, Chip has a lot of experience in fire media, uh, fire weather meteorology. So we look forward to, uh, to talking with uh, Chip about that tonight. So if you are watching, uh, please uh, feel free to interact with us via our Facebook page, Carolina Weather Group, or you can find us on Twitter at Carolina WX Group. Uh, please feel free to uh, send us any tweets or any posts throughout the show. Uh, we'll make sure to get those questions answered. I know this is a Monday night show, so I'm not sure if we'll have our regular following tonight. So if you're watching on the rebroadcast, uh, we'll have Chip uh, share his uh, social media um platforms with you and you can direct those questions uh, maybe if you're watching a couple of days from now on Wednesday. So uh, we appreciate everyone who is viewing tonight. We appreciate uh, Chip coming on tonight. Uh, this will be our last show for uh, 2016. We're going to take next week off with Christmas break and then uh, kind of reconvene uh, the first Wednesday of January. So I think we've got all the housekeeping stuff out of the way. Uh, it has been a very uh, cool uh, weekend. Uh, for the first part, and then Sunday, it really warmed up into um, the 60s, and I think Shay down in Charleston was basking in the 70s. Uh, so we'll, we'll get Shay on here in just a second to talk about the uh, the roller coaster that we had. Where I was joking earlier, it, it was like 40 something today, and it actually felt warm. I mean, it was kind of a cold Arctic air mass that has moved back into the area, but 40s feel better uh, than the 20s that we saw on on Friday. Uh, 20s in the highs. So uh, some areas of uh, down where Kit lives there in the uh, Charlotte area, seen some ice over the weekend. So uh, we'll throw that to Kit as well here in just a second. Ricky Matthews is going to be with us tonight. Um, he's filling in for his uh, chief tonight, uh, coming back into the studio. He's going to be direct in the uh, conversation because he's uh, had a lot of experience uh, there in East Tennessee with the Gatlinburg fires. So I know Ricky uh, was really excited to have Chip on. So as soon as he joins us, we'll really dive into the conversation. But before that, I'm going to throw it down to Charleston uh, with Shay. Uh, he can talk to us a little bit about, about what the weather's been like down there in the uh, low country of South Carolina over the weekend. Shay? Yes, Scotty. Uh, you said it about right. Roller coaster ride. I mean, we, we were just at almost breaking a record yesterday for high temperature at 79 degrees, warm, sunny. Uh, of course, wire temperatures being down to 56, 56 and a half degrees. We had uh, quite a bit of fog going on, so the marine layer was very thick all the way uh, along the barrier islands and across both all the connectors, any of the highways that, that run out to these islands. The, the fog was basically backed up all the way to the inland areas beyond the barrier island beaches, so it was pretty thick. Uh, once you got to some of the parallel roads to the coastline just inland, uh, things cleared out. It was sunny and warm and nice, and, and people were out and about, and it was like almost like a, a nice late spring day, very nice. Uh, but when we woke up this morning, a whole different story is it started out cloudy around 60 degrees and the temperatures steadily fell throughout the whole day. We got down to about 42 degrees by this afternoon, late afternoon, uh, which is usually backwards. We usually we heat up in the day. This time we actually cooled. So we had some of that cold air damming actually make it down our way. More of it was up uh, near Lake Moultrie and inland up towards the mid-state. But the coastline, we definitely felt some of that cool air off of the northeast wedge uh, make its way down here. So that was... Um, Boy, it was by the end of the afternoon, you're like, whew, man, it's, it's pretty chilly. I mean, for Charleston, with a, uh, you're getting close to getting the wind chills. Of course, we know wind chills start right around 40 degrees. And when you add the wind to it, then and things start to really go downhill as far as what the temperature actually feels like. So I, th I still think that we were in, in about mid-30s for our uh, wind chills by this afternoon, even though we can't really gauge it according to the NOAA wind chart. But as far as uh, the rest of the week, looks like we're going to slowly warm up just a little bit. I think tomorrow we're going to stay a little bit on the cool side, upper 40s. As we get into later in the week, um, we'll start to warm up to milder temperatures, maybe upper 60s, near 70, maybe even low 70s for Christmas with some partly cloudy skies as we have Bermuda High. Uh, that'll be the dominant feature. So it looks like we're doing we're, you know, pretty mild temperatures for Christmas, which 
that's not unheard of. We've had that several years out of the last, I'd say seven out of the last 10 years, we've had pretty mild Christmases. So nothing out of the ordinary, just Charleston, South Carolina. Back to you, Scotty. Yeah, thanks, Shay. It does look like the uh, Bermuda High is going to kind of take hold of the uh, the area uh, the week after Christmas going into the first week or so of January. So uh, back to the warm and dry conditions uh, probably for our area. So let's uh, toss it over to kids who uh, here in North Carolina and uh, parts of Virginia I uh, had a brief bout with some wintry weather and Kit, you guys in the Charlotte area and then over towards Greensboro and Raleigh uh, were the ones affected by just a little bit of light freezing rain and drizzle. So at uh, your location, did you see any? And then talk to us about what uh, took place over the weekend in Charlotte. Well, Saturday morning I had uh, to run a sub-emergency errand for a friend um, around 9 a.m. Uh, so... I did the one thing that I usually try not to do whenever it's uh, wet and below freezing outside. I just usually make a general rule to not drive, but broke that rule because of the situation. But um, I was on the road. I think it was, uh, I can't remember what road it was. It was somewhere in uh, East Charlotte, but uh, the bridge that I had just crossed, I just was crossing a bridge absentmindedly, and I was like, wait a minute, I think I slipped a little bit. Look in my rearview mirror, there was a truck that had been rather aggressive in his driving. I see it swerve, swerve, and then the nose dipped twice and it went into the median and kicked up a bunch of dirt in front of uh, its tire. And well, that's what they always say, that bridges ice before roads. Um, looking at the climate summary from uh, Greenville Spartanburg for uh, the Charlotte region, um, around that time and earlier that morning, there was really just some freezing fog and mist. It was uh, in the upper 20s, so that's, perfect conditions for a little bit of uh, ice to accumulate, especially on uh, those bridges. Um, so he ended up, uh, he didn't crash or hit anything. He just sort of pulled off to the side of the road and uh, collected himself, I guess, after I drove away. But um, I mean, I was going down the road. But um, other than that, uh, I think the night before there was a little bit of ice on my car from a sprinkle, but I'm looking forward to the warmer weather to come up, um, especially for Christmas time, because we usually have family come over, and it's nice to have uh, a little bit of extra room to head outside on the back porch or have the little cousins uh, run around outside instead of running around inside. Very, very true, Kev. Glad you made it safe. So uh, definitely was a tricky commute for parts of the Carolinians, or parts of the Carolinas, um, for Carolinians. <laughs> in Raleigh, there were like over 50, something over 50 accidents within an hour in yeah. Raleigh area. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people probably have seen the video from Baltimore um, there on Interstate 95, just a tra tragic scene as well. So um, ice is something you don't want to mess with. Thankfully, we don't have any of that in the forecast. So I want to toss it over to Ricky Matthews. He can kind of talk about uh, what he's eating, I think. <laughs> Uh, so Ricky, I will, I will, I will stall for a little bit. Um, okay. He's giving me a thumbs up. So Ricky, uh, I'll, I know you're going to discuss, uh, lead into our discussion tonight. So if you want to kind of recap the weekend that you guys have had over there in East Tennessee and then kind of bring in our guests for tonight's show. Sure. Yeah. This, uh, hopefully you guys can hear me. We're on a different, little bit of a different audio setup tonight. This, uh, podcast is sponsored by Chick-fil-A tonight, <laughs> which is what I am, uh, Enjoying here on my dinner break. I'm actually filling in for my chief meteorologist tonight, uh, Dave Burke. So <clears throat> I'm uh, doing three different things at once here, working on my forecast for 10 and 11, doing this show, and uh, having a quick bite to eat as well. So it's been pretty calm up here. We had some rain, what, uh, over the weekend, a little bit of snow in spots. But overall, it was uh, not too active. We had one severe thunderstorm warning, and that was about it. But uh, Certainly, it could be a lot more active, uh, and it has been over the past couple of months, and that's what we want to talk about. I, I should say active, but I guess the lack of activity in terms of rainfall really led to some of the drought conditions we saw across our area, all across the southeast this year, and then in response to that, some of the wildfires that we saw. And that's where our guest tonight, Chip Redmond, comes in. Chip is going to talk a little bit about the fire side of everything, a little bit about the fire forecasting side, and then we're going to get into Gatlinburg a little bit too and talk about that. So Chip, welcome once again to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's kind of start off from a fire weather point of view. Talk a little bit about 
how the drought in the southeast really almost made this just the perfect fire setup this year? Well, with uh, global climate change, you're having a lot more flash droughts, and you could you could call that kind of maybe somewhat a lead into this. But with the lack of precipitation slowly over throughout the year really led into it by drying out a lot of your surface fuels and your grasses. Um, and then combining that with the typical fire season in the Southeast, which is usually the fall. And that's mainly because of the leaves. It's, it's a large carrier or a primary carrier of fire through those mountains. Um, without that, the grass usually will typically burn into uh, burn into the understory there of the trees and just kind of fizzle out due to excessive moisture, not excessive, but persistent moisture underneath the leaf cover. And due to the drought, um, a lot of those, that whole understory was dried out all year. It never really had a chance to get that moisture and hold it in. So um, kind of that element combined with that gradual leaf fall uh throughout i believe the leaves are falling for over a month weren't they 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 held on for a while and um with that you you saw different fire behavior than you typically would because fire just kind of kept moving back and forth as more leaves fell it just had more fuel to consume um even if it already burned through one area so the combination of that drought um along with the time of the year uh really were really aided in the fire behavior you know, around here, it seemed like most of our fires were grass fires or ground fires. What goes into making ground fires versus some of the fires that we see out west that are typically in the trees? Right. Well, that, that goes into your fuel type. Uh, you have deciduous trees as your primary fuel type in the eastern U.S., um, especially the southeast there in the mountainous areas. Um, out west, it's predominantly evergreens. Um, they keep their needles year round um, and they, they usually have a lot, they're a, a better fuel source. Uh, the leaves take a lot to burn. I mean, it has happened. It happened in Oklahoma a couple years ago where they were having crown fires through oak trees. Um, I think it was 2012, 2011 in the extreme drought, but that's extremely rare. Um, this, the, the evergreens carry fire a lot easier and they also have carriers up to the leaves as well. Deciduous trees kind of tend to die off in their understory and um, are predominantly overstory trees. So um, the big thing is your fuel moisture content and the, the type of fuel aloft in, in those overstories. Um, you did see, I, I think there were reports of some crown fires, um, at least maybe active crown fires, not really independent crown fires. There's three types of crown fires. It's passive, active, independent. Passive is just a tree would torch out and that's it. Um, and then maybe another one downstream a little bit. Um, active is you've got a fairly moving crown fire with an active surface fire underneath it. And then independent is just a full-on crown fire. And I don't think anywhere, any of the fires, not even Gatlinburg had a full-on um, independent crown fire. And that's just the continuity in the fuel types in the overstory. So you mentioned fuel moisture content and a few other uh, stuff in there. Those kind of tie into some of the parameters that you guys can look at, the firefighters can look at. Can you speak a little bit about some of those parameters and maybe one that really stands out? I meant, remember meeting up with some firefighters around the area and they said that, you know, when some of these indices met certain criteria, that's when they really started to worry about fires breaking out. Okay. Um, well, there's the fuel moistures primary the primary driver and there's four different types of fuel moisture there's one hour ten hour hundred hour and thousand hour fuel moisture so one hour the hours basically pertain to how long it takes for that fuel to become completely dry um so your grasses are your one hour fuel they'll be really moist in the morning and by usually nine ten o'clock in full sun they're usually completely cured out or dried out um and then the thing goes to 10 hours, usually a bigger stick. And it's got a little bit more diameter to it uh, than the 100 hours or you're starting to get into the big logs and the 1,000 hours are the very big logs. Uh, and so those are the main things to look for. Um, your one hour to 10 hours, or 10 hours sometimes and will easily dry out and drought. Um, but your one hour is dry out every day. When you start getting in a drought, you start to see the 100 hour and the 1,000 hours being impacted 
and as they dry out they're able to carry fire more like you don't put what wet wood in a fireplace right it smolders it doesn't burn well you want that dry um dry really oh what's the texture oh, i can't think of it um you just really want the dry wood and um so fuel moisture comes back into you know, when you have a drought you start to see the thousand hours and 100 hours drying out more um and therefore you can carry fire and that was happening a lot of the fires out there today or last month is that you were seeing the fires not go out overnight those 100 hours thousand hours are holding fire for a long period of time they're burning like they would in a fireplace they're burning for hours on end um and that normally wouldn't happen say in a typical fall season out there so uh, that's those are your primary indicators there's another one that you probably heard is ERCs um, ERC is another just a calculated drought index and uh, it's implicated more of a long term so you're looking at more of your thousand hour fuels in that um, and ERC stands for energy release component just how much energy does that wood hold and how willing is it to burn uh, for a long period of time so higher ERCs mean a higher percentage that it'll carry fire and a higher percentage that it'll burn. And so when you start to see ERCs, you know, in the 90th percentiles we were getting out there, they're, they're driest that they've ever been um, in recent times. And so there, you saw that those fuels hold and be able to carry fire. Well, Chip, I got a question. I saw something about there being it almost being 70 years or so since the last major forest fires in our area in the southeast region uh does that have any historical any of the history have any value here as far as how hot these fires got and how fast they spread well it's hard to say because it was about 100 years 170 years since we started suppressing fire actively and um so you were getting a lot of natural fires go through there before that were being let burn because there was no one out there to stop them or suppress them. And that, so it's hard to get a climatology of just how often these areas burn and how intense they burn just because they haven't been burned. All those fuels are just building up over time. Um, I would say it's hard to say that they were, they were the most intense because in seven years, because your fuels that were carrying it were leaf litter predominantly. And so they can only get so hot. Um, it's not like you had whole trees burning and crowning out. Um, and it's just going to be really hard to get a very hot fire in that kind of vegetation. Not answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking on the lines of, of this many years of building debris, where it becomes like a powder keg for, for this to occur when you get an extreme drought situation. And so you just have the ground, I don't know. I mean, I know things break down, they decay. You have a lot of deciduous vegetation there as well, like rhododendron and uh, some of the waxy trees and, and things mm -hmm. like that. But uh, you know what happened in Gatlinburg, it was just such a, an intense heat, heat like event that I think any, there's no matter what kind of vegetation it was, it was gonna be done within a, you know seconds. So, well, you um, hit at something else there, too, is that that leaf litter builds up over time and it does decay, but that drought slows that decay process down because it needs moisture to decay. And so you're able to, as that moisture gets extinct from those ground fuels, um, you, you get further and further down, you develop this duff layer, is what it's called, and that duff layer becomes combustible, whereas in a normal year, it wouldn't have been combustible. So it held fire down underground where you wouldn't normally ever see that. Um, you'll see it a lot in Western US where they, the duff is, isn't, the evergreen needles don't break down as quickly as the leaves. Um, so they have a thicker duff layer. But um, as you're able to carry that fire down, it's able to sit there and smolder around too for a long periods of time. Gatlinburg was interesting, and I, I, we'll talk about a little bit more, I don't know if this is when you want to get into it, but um, it was just fueled by strong winds. And that, there was, there were pretty significant wind events, several, I believe, in November that helped carry the fires, but there was never a large event, uh, event to this magnitude of these winds of this speed. Um, the fires were predominantly driven by just drought fuels. They were burning up slope and kind of sitting out at the top. They weren't able to spot unless there was some wind at the top. So I think 
really the Southeast is lucky that it was a predominant high pressure in place for a lot of um, a lot of November. And you didn't have those strong wind gradients, especially um, to that magnitude that you had at Gatlinburg. So we also wanted to bring in a different side of this from the fires to more of the air quality side. I know Shay had mentioned something he wanted to talk about some of the products that were out there um, that kind of show the smoke, but what really goes into how smoky a fire is? Um, well, I, the biggest thing would be the atmosphere. Uh, if the atmosphere is unstable, you're, you have you know, a deep mixing layer in the afternoon, you're able to carry that smoke up much higher aloft and you're, it disperses well and you don't notice it as much. Whereas I know a lot of days there were, you were socked in by uh, a deep inversion just below the ridge tops, and that's keeping that smoke down at the surface. That that's a big decision or deciding factor of how well your smoke plume disperses and what the air quality is downstream. Um, I would say you know usually when you have wet wood, it tends to smoke more. You know it tends to smolder, not burn as efficiently. Um, so that that goes into it a little bit, but it was so it was such a drought stricken area. I mean, I don't think you were seeing any more smoke production. You just had a lot of fire on the ground. I mean, at one point, I lost track of all the fires. You couldn't count them on your hands and your toes. Large fires. I mean, we're talking thousand plus acre fires, and that's just not something you guys are used to seeing and dealing with. So smoke is a whole new concern at that point, and, it, and it's not smoldering, or else it wouldn't be burning as well as it was. Um, your fuels will go into it a little bit uh, just because if you have a, a really thick fuel, like a thousand hour fuel burning, especially overnight, it's going to produce more smoke um, than say the leaves will. But the, the predominant factor there is just the, the air quality decision making due to the environmental uh, influences. So, you know, we had dealt with that a ton across our area. We ended up having some very bad days of air quality. I think we ended up getting to code red. I don't think we ever got to code purple, but I know, Scotty, you guys got some very bad air quality in your region too. Talk a little bit from a health standpoint, either Scotty or Ship, you know, what really the smoke adds up to? Well, I know that at least on several fires, they, they couldn't actively engage the fire line because the smoke was such a health hazard. And they had to just let it burn around because it, it just wasn't safe to be out there. You couldn't drive down the streets. And, you know, days and days and days of inhaling that is just going to add up and it, it's, it's going to become a big, big health hazard. Um, you know, if you would have seen Think about Gatlinburg too, it was a big dynamic storm system, strong winds, you were able to transport that smoke very far um, at a fast rate of speed. And so the smoke wasn't as big of an impact as it was those days where that high pressure was, you know, right over the Southeast and the smoke had nowhere to go. You didn't have those transport winds. Um, but smoke is one of the, smoke and flash flooding are the two kind of hidden um, things with wildland fire that people often don't think about. It's suppressed the fire. Um, and then, oh, by the way, we had these other, <laughs> these other two things to worry about. Yeah, we had a flash flood watch issued for the Gatlinburg area. I think that was probably the first flash flood watch Morristown's ever issued for burn scars. You know, it's not a mm -hmm. very common thing around here. All right, I want to transition over a little bit. Uh, if you guys have any other questions in just fire weather in general, Go ahead and throw those in now, and then we're going to transition over to Gatlinburg a little bit. I also have to go record updates here in a few minutes, so we'll uh, let you guys throw any questions if you have them, and then we'll transition over. Yeah, I was sure. going to yeah, oh, Go ahead, Scotty. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, while, while we're on the, the smoke, this is uh, these were some of the scenes that we saw up at the Clear Creek Fire in McDowell County, uh, and there's just a uh, just crazy amount of smoke um, from these fires, and um, I think there was three or four consecutive days of code purple um, air quality alerts for the foothills um, with the Clear Creek fire and as well as the South Mountain fire and the Party Rock fire and it got so bad that um, there was actually some shelters opened up for, for folks in the community just because um, the area that they lived in 
was so um, filled with smoke that they couldn't breathe, and it was more elderly people. And so we had to open up, you know, shelters, um, basically just so people could breathe semi-clean air. I mean, the smoke was was so bad throughout everybody that the, everybody was breathing in, in bad air, but especially in the locations that, that these people were living in, it was just the smoke was horrendous. And, and also, um, Chip, maybe you can talk about this, the visibility. You know, if you had a strong wind and, and you was downwind of that, that fire, that smoke was pretty dense in a lot of locations. And uh, that was another thing that I think caught a lot of people off guard is, you know, uh, Interstate 40 at, at times was almost to a crawl because of just how thick the smoke was. And I know you probably guys have, have seen that as well in the Midwest and also out on the West Coast. Yeah, smoke is a big deal, especially in Kansas, believe it or not. Uh, with all the prescribed burning that they do every year, it, it's killed many, many people on the roads because they can't see, they slow down, hit the brakes, and then somebody behind them just plows into them. And uh, I know that uh, an area that they burn south here of Manhattan is owned by Kansas State. Um, they they killed some people on I-70, and now it's a, it's a political deal. They worry about lawsuits. So there's a lot of uh, different things that can come from smoke just besides the breathing aspect. Uh, and you know, there, there's days here they tried to schedule burning on certain days to or encourage burning on certain days where the smoke won't blow into Kansas City or won't blow into Omaha or Wichita. Um, and that's a lot of time and effort is spent on trying to educate people on just how bad this smoke is. And think about these are guys just out burning their fields. Um, it's not a large forest fire or anything, but they'll burn up to, you know, a couple thousand acres in one day. So it, you just got to be aware of where that smoke's going and, you know, how many people it's going to impact as well. So Chip, also, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Have you guys heard of super fog? Yes. We actually had some of that here in Charleston. And that's, that's because of the smoke and the combination of the smoke and the, that moisture. It's, it's nasty stuff. Yeah. I guess you, Florida's kind of been known for it the most, I think. I, I, did you have, you had a lot of it then in November or? Yeah, actually, um, oh, that's a good segue right into um, one thing I was going to bring up was some of the air quality products that we got. And this was an opportunity for a lot of, a lot of meteorologists to, to dial in on what sort of fire products that the Weather Service uses in the U.S. Forestry, uh, the U.S. Forestry Service and the State Forestry Commissions were using. So this is the National Weather Service. I don't know if you can see it or not on the screen, but uh, can anybody see this? Yeah. Uh, this is a, um, a pretty high-resolution one-hour surface smoke uh, product. This is just one of the examples from Wednesday, November the 16th, going, I, I think this was a 36-hour product showing Shay, which way the smoke. Yes? You have your GR Earth pulled up. I just, I didn't oh, okay. All right. Well, let, me, uh, let me stop sharing that and get back over. <laughs> I, I, I thought I, I knew what you were doing. I was going to stop you before we got too far into it. No, nah, I got it. I was on the wrong screen there. My, my apologies. There How you about go. This? Yeah, okay, good. You go. So here is... Um, you know, this was the 15th through the 16th, and you can see where the smoke <laughs> is sort of following around a pattern. And and we got, you know, pretty, we had a pretty good amount of smoke all the way to the coastline in Charleston. Uh, this is just one of the products. This is a higher resolution product the Weather Service has available. Uh, we also have this one right here, which is is actually called WebSky, which was a very popular product to use. It's um It's a high resolution North American model. It can be it can actually go from from uh, coarse resolution to medium resolution, and then they have a higher resolution model. This sort of gives you an idea of, of and you can see like the, the actual weather pattern through the way that smoke is turning and going through the areas. But this is, you know, sort of how we would get inundated by these persistent northwest winds that seem to be, you know, continuing to trigger these fires over and over again as fronts would move through, and then the postfrontal winds would kick in. Of course, the fronts would would fall apart by the time they got here. So there was nothing, no no rain or anything, and the smoke itself continued to dry the atmosphere out. Uh, so that was that was one thing that we noticed as meteorologists. This was a common thing that we would see on the MODIS imaging, right here of all the fires in all the different states. We have Tennessee, we have Georgia, Alabama. I'm sorry, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And there there was other fires in other areas, but the one I have circled here, of course, is Party Rock. Uh, that was when I was interested in that particular day. Uh, but we, we also had 
Um, some of this event, you talked about super fog. This was a this was a super fog event for us in Charleston, all the way up through Myrtle Beach. It got foggy and smoke at the same time. It was pretty bad. And you can see the tail of this where there was a frontal boundary sort of draped off. There's there a little bit of a sea breeze action going on with this, but you can see the tail of smoke being kind of pushed together and then strewn out into the Atlantic. And this whole wall was was basically a wall of super fog. Uh, that was pretty significant. I can't, I cannot remember the date on that one. I think if I look at the properties on it, I might find uh, November the 11th was that one. Uh, but that, that was pretty unique being able to pull up these products. So when you are actually looking for smoke forecasting, uh, do you look at any of these products at all? Or do you have anything that you would recommend? Well, luckily I don't have to do a whole lot of smoke forecasting. <laughs> they have air resource advisors for that. <laughs> um, no, I look at that blue sky. Um, the other thing, a high split is a great model. If you're forecasting out the smoke plumes, uh, a lot of people use it in backwards trajectories for um, uh, source regions for air masses. Mm -hmm. um, trying to think of any others that I use. There are, they, they deploy little weather stations. I think Ricky might have tweeted a photo of it. Um, they have weather stations that measure the air quality around um, the fires as well. And there's a whole different website for that. I can't think of what it is at the moment. But you can look at real-time um, air quality measurements. Uh, it's, it's really neat to see every morning it will get socked in in the valleys, and then by the afternoon it will clear out and be good, good air quality. Um, yeah, Air Now's Air Now's one that um, that isn't one that's too user friendly for meteorologists. It's more uh, public facing, but um, yeah, I can't think of any others right now. Right. This this is kind of one that I use for the public just to show the the, the various regions and, and what the air quality would be. It became a problem, and we haven't had that in Charleston some time. I asked the weather service here, when's the last time that we had uh, you know, a, a very high uh, air quality issue. It was, I think it was up around 180 or 190 or something at one point. It was really high, and they said they didn't know. <laughs> They're like, well, we, have, we may have to go back and take a look at that because we haven't had it. I don't think we've had it this bad before. Uh, but luckily, we didn't have, you know, it wasn't too many of those days. It was just the, the sea breezes here along the coastline. The smoke would get wrapped up into the circulation, and, and, and that's what it was. It was from high to low smoke. <laughs> there was no jetting and going out over the ocean, it just got wrapped right into the coastline. So Charleston and, and some of the coastal areas of South Carolina and North Carolina specifically, they, they got it pretty bad. Yeah, you didn't have to deal with any thermal inversion, or not thermal inversions. Um, oh, now, what were you talking about earlier with the uh, marine, marine time inversions, the marine layer and uh, that moisture pushing inland, you didn't have to deal with that because the mountains are far enough inland, but that can also play a significant role in fire behavior as well, especially in California. They get that a lot where they'll have, you won't be able to see the, the, the valleys, but on the hilltops, the fire's rocking because it's, there's dry air aloft. A lot of, a lot of um, very small micro meteorology almost type things go into these fires that you just, you wouldn't normally see in a in a day to day basis by forecasting unless you're really really hyper focused on it, and the littlest things can make a big difference as well. They just released the Twips Twisp fire um, summary that killed those three firefighters in Washington two years ago, and what formed that was just basically the the land sea boundary, but it gets strong enough up there in Washington that it creates a, pre a weak low pressure. Um, trough that gradually shifted across the state and just that very subtle shift to the northwest is enough to you know invigorate a fire and, and kill firefighters yeah we hear many times that these fires generate their own weather at times and um i i, I sort of look at that and say whoa you know you see pyrocumulus clouding there's all kinds of things that go on but what, what do you say for the areas that are most impacted, how does that, how do these fires change the weather in that area? Well, they take, they, they got to be able to have a bigger heat source. So they got to have a lot of fuel and, and at least the terrain topography lines up to allow a large heat source. But once it can tap into a large heat source, it will 
basically be strong enough to overpower it. And you won't see that very often with strong wind events. Um, Cause a lot of times that wind will drive the fire. It's the days where the fires can overcome the environmental winds um, and at least the regional winds. And um, that's when you start to see the fire really start to create its own weather. Once it overpowers those parameters, it can suck in. It's it basically, it's a big heat source. So it's a big little pressure system. It sucks everything in to it and pushes it up and it's able to keep moving and keep doing its own thing. Um, you know, once it gets strong enough, it'll usually tap and it'll break through the boundary layer and it'll usually, you know, fires typically develop in the summertime, um, at least in Western US, and it'll tap into upper level winds. Um, it'll develop that pyrocumulus. And if it's strong enough, it'll push that pyrocumulus into, you know, a TCU or maybe even a thunderstorm. Um, there was a really cool YouTube video that just came out of Australia last week, two weeks ago, of a time lapse of one of a fire developing a thunderstorm with lightning and rain falling out of it. But what that does then, I mean, it, it, mod, it modified the environment to develop a thunderstorm that wouldn't have been there on a typical day. Um, but not all those towering cumulonimbus have rain and lightning and they'll still collapse. And so this is a typical life cycle, right? It goes up, got to come down eventually. And so when it comes down, it brings winds aloft with it down to the surface and it'll create additional winds. Um, it'll vary the wind direction and cause a lot more erratic fire behavior. So that's when we start to see, when we start getting those collapses of the towering cumulonimbus multiple times, um, that, that's about as extreme as it gets. And you'll get long distance spotting, um, you'll see very turbulent fire whirls, um, and you'll see it just dominate over the, the regular pattern. And that, that's when the fire can move large distances and it begins to just torch everything out. And it, that's, that's the worst kind of fire you can have because not only does it nuke the ground, but it, it, it'll also create a, um, a hydrophobic surface on the soils so the water won't be able to go through the soils anymore so there's all kinds of things going down, going on there but um yeah i don't think there were too many fires and i wouldn't even call gatlinburg really um fire weather fire dominated weather uh, i think that was predominantly driven by the strong winds too so gatlinburg was more of a weather induced fire rather than fire induced weather. correct Correct. Yeah, Gatlinburg was, it, it, when you see the strong, strong little pressure systems like that, that usually have a uh, dry region. I, I don't think there was a dry line in place that day um, of any kind, but um, when you get that dry area in between the cold front and the warm front, whether it's a dry line or just the dry air mass in place, that's just optimal for fire growth. And usually from the Southeast to the Northwest towards a low pressure system. And it's usually blown by very, very strong winds. And with that, we had, we call these mountain wave wind events that hit Gatlinburg and the winds in these systems can gust sometimes, and they're very isolated, but they can sometimes gust, we've recorded 90 miles per hour in portions of Camp Creek before. Uh, in fact, the wind event we just had the other day, Sevierville gusted, I think to 87 or 84. So th these winds are nothing to, certainly mess around with and uh, we saw the consequences of that. Uh, Scotty, you had a question and then we'll get back into some Gatlinburg stuff. Yeah, we're, we're talking about how this was more a weather-driven event than a fire-weather-driven uh, event. I think it was Shay and I had this conversation, maybe it was last week. Um, it's something we were both discussing, really didn't have an answer for, but as the Gatlinburg fire was taking place, um, there was two bands of rain that came through. The first band to me, it looked like when radar kind of dried up as it was moving into to the Gatlinburg. And to me, as a meteorologist, it's approaching the mountains. It would create lift and actually have maybe a little bit more rain there than, than normal. Uh, so my question is, did the fire there have any um, have any effect to, to the rain falling, uh, you know, kind of drying up as, as it came into the Gatlinburg area? Um, I would say no. This, that plume was blow, blowing, I think, almost north, slightly northwest. 
and that the, the rain was approaching from the due west. I think it just the the main wasn't there a, an initial cold front that weakened as a, a second short wave helped the secondary low pressure system develop and a more primary cold front behind it. I think Ricky Rick would probably know the setup a little bit better than me. He was closer. Yeah, so, so we ended up having uh, two little bands. The first one was more like a weakening cold front they moved through on the night yeah. the fire was occurring. And then we had a heavier surge of moisture. Actually, with the tornadoes in Alabama that occurred, that moved up into the Gatlinburg area the next day, uh, triggering a tornado warning for the burn area, and then uh, moved up. But, Scotty, I, I don't want to jump in over Chip here, but I, I think perhaps what was going on, and Chip, you can agree with or disagree with me, was perhaps the downsloping winds. You know, with the winds that were so strong funneling the fires, we get these strong, we see this all the time here in the mountains of Tennessee on the eastern, western side, where the downsloping winds will basically erode any rainfall that moves into these areas where they're occurring. So with, you know, winds that were sustained 30 to 40 and gusting up to 60 or 70, I think perhaps that was more of it in the fire. Yeah, it's probably a combination of that. I was thinking it was just losing its source of forcing general, um, but I hadn't thought of that. You're, you're probably right that downslope probably aided that. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can see this on the screen or not, but this was a radar scope shot they got of uh, the Gatlinburg fires uh, where the winds were really cranking and you can see the southerly flow heading to the north and, uh, and radar picked up the heat signatures and the smoke trail ahead of that rain that was coming and, and like Scotty said we were we were like man you know the heat from those fires must have you know fizzled this rain out but you know as Ricky's pointing out these downslope uh, downslope winds but it's just another example of, of how significant it was even on radar how large this area how many fires there were so um i don't know this was kind of a popular image going around for a bit as people caught it on radar scope it was one of those you know big wows so you know that that fire was probably wind driven but it did have some convective component to it or else it wouldn't have shown up that high on reflectivity as well so i think that it's kind of a hybrid event um you guys remember Anderson Creek from uh, March in Kansas? The largest wildfire on privately owned land. It burned from Oklahoma up into Tech or Oklahoma up into Kansas. Um, you guys don't remember that, man. See, that's the thing with these fires is that you guys got to you got to work on it while it's fresh. Work with your work with your legislatures. Remember to push all that kind of stuff now and keep it going because you guys forget about it. No, it was the second largest, third largest wildfire. It was the largest in Kansas history, and it burned 397,000 acres. Something like that. Wow. Is that one of the, the Chinook fires? No, no, no. It started in the same kind of setup. It started the day before a strong low-pressure system um, that brought – so it started out in that warm sector, and with those strong southerly winds at night cranking, and it went – I think it went 30 miles overnight. And then the cold front or the prefrontal dry line, prefrontal trough and dry line crossed it, switching the wind two different directions. They made the whole um, right flank a, basically a head fire when the cold front went through. And it basically burned completely around in itself. So um, the same kind of thing happened, though, is you had strong winds that were the dominant driver, but you had still pyrocumulus um, – <coughs> development on that wind driven fire and so you're kind of getting a combination of the two factors there and it's, it might be kind of a new kind of fire that we're starting to see more and more of so let's transition uh, just a moment here and talk perhaps from more of a theoretical point of view could the gatlinburg fire have been prevented at all Probably not. And talk a little bit about why. I mean, you know, this area hadn't had a fire in many years, and I imagine that accumulated fire content really helped accelerate it. Yeah, it's it's very possible. Um, but the thing the thing is, that fast as that fire was moving, being driven by the winds, it wasn't able to consume a lot of that old fuel load that was there. I mean, it's basically riding on the surface fuels and, and hauling on the surface fuels. So it's burning with the leaves. I would say that 
um, maybe your long term, maybe some of the vegetation, like you were talking about some of the rhododendron, different things that might not have typically have burned as easily, um, might have been enhanced because uh, with that, that much heat as it had at the surface fuels, it, it was, it enhanced the probability of ignition downstream. Um, even with prescribed burning, I think that, you know, use the same amount of leaves every year. I mean, there's a ton of leaves. You guys have a lot of trees out there. Um, you have a lot of fuel load every fall. Um, so you're just kind of asking for it each year. Now, to what extent, um, I, I know, um, just from some experience, just clearing some trails in, uh, Ash County with my granddad, um, I know that some like local fire departments will go out and uh, grab rakes and they'll clear the underbrush. They'll um, clear like a whole mountainside or two, or at least do a wide swath uh, where they're clearing all of the uh, leaves and underbrush. To what extent does that help prevent wildfires from spreading or um, from starting? Yeah, I, I mean, you're just taking away those surface fuels. So you're, you're taking away the ignition because very rarely does the top of the tree catch on fire and then start a fire start a wildfire it, it's usually somewhere in the surface fields where it, it, it sits there and mucks around to build up enough heat to start expanding um you see that a lot in western u.s where they'll go out and they'll they'll thin the bottoms of the trees they'll cut off all the excess dead dead limbs they'll bring it all into a pile and they'll pile burn it in the the winter when there's snow on the ground it's the same concept um they're just trying to take away those those ignition fuels that are there and I would say that that would probably be an unhealthy thing because there's a lot of the wildlife and insects and everything. I mean, they live off that, that moisture and the, the different critters that live in there. Um, so that, that would almost be a bad thing, wouldn't it? I could see taking some of that habitat away from uh, the wildlife could end up um, driving them out. But um that sort of uh, brings a counter question. Uh, what is the wildlife impact on like large forest fires like uh, the Gatlinburg event? Oh, it's still, still really good. I mean, it, 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 I guarantee that area will be, especially the grass and the, the young vegetation will be greener than they've seen it in years out there. Unfortunately, the houses don't come back as easily. So to an extent, do the like large animals like deer or raccoons, do they, sort of get out of the way or do they uh, sometimes get trapped and do they like come back in full swing? Yeah, some might get trapped, but I mean, they're, they're wild. They, they know how to handle it. They, their instincts have been there all along and they, they've handled these well before we were ever around. Um, so they, they rarely get trapped. So you see these people rescuing, you know, baby raccoons and different things like that. And, you know, they, they learn to just get with it. They know that it's a good thing because it'll it'll help all that vegetation next year thrive, and then they will thrive as well. So it pushed them out, but I I bet you you find just as many now if you went in there as you did a week before the fire. That's a very good point you brought up. You know, everyone kind of thinks of the the negative side of this, and not taking anything away from it, it was a horrible disaster. But you know, from a from a ecological standpoint the area around there probably will come back much healthier talk a little bit about um, kind of the return process how long will it take for some of these areas to start having some new vegetation grow um, and then is there still a wildfire risk in that areas that have even already burned well um, you know the, the surface fields come back first it, there probably was some mortality just by how hot that surface fire was. You probably killed off some of the bigger trees and it'll take, you know, 30 to 50 years for a lot of those trees to come back the way they were. I don't know how old a lot of those trees are out there. Um, excuse me. So, um, but I, you, you'll see the grass be just as green. It's not going to return the winter. It needs a growing season, obviously, but we, we do prescribe fire out here in the spring and that first rain a day later, the ground's as green as it can be. Um, that grass recovers very, very fast. Um, it's good. It gets rid of the invasive species too, because they're not able to handle it. Um, so it will kill off the invasive species. And then, um, then you'll start to see the brush come back. 
in this typical lifestyle. Everything just gets reseeded and starts new. Um, and what was the second part to your question again? Oh, well, well, will it burn again? Yeah. Um, you know, your, your fuels are definitely gone if you have to have the spring fire season. So say drought, I mean, you guys have got lucky with some moisture here recently. Say drought persisted the winter, um, comes back with revenge with no rain in the spring, then there probably won't be a, there won't be a whole lot of fuel there for a spring fire. But you know, if those big evergreen or not evergreens, but the big deciduous trees come back with a good leaf fall or leaves leaf out in the fall like normal with a typical fire load, then I would say, yeah, it, it'll burn again next fall. So let's go, we're getting very close to an hour here and I, I wanna wrap this up, um, but let's talk a little bit about from a personal safety standpoint, people who live in the areas near fires, what's some yeah. of the things they can do to prevent, or not so much prevent, but just limit their risks? Yeah, that's that's something that's been talked about a lot and especially in Western Kansas, so they, they push, they call it the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface. And these people are living in a, in a wild area. I mean, that's a whole town just dropped into a, a, a forest, essentially. And, you know, to be able to prevent that, that kind of fire with that much wind, it would have taken a, a, quite a fire break, like a lake or a large river or something like that. Um, but a lot of those houses probably could have been saved, though, if they had... 50 to 100 feet of just grass around their house um, and, and not having the, the large vegetation um, such you know people love to put cedar trees they love to put uh, pretty evergreens next to their house and I mean that's just a, a ticking time bomb for any fire especially with wind I mean all it takes is one little ember to catch that bad boy off and you're it's gonna take your house with you um, and so you, you, you got to think about those kind of things. And I guarantee a lot of people are thinking about it now. Unfortunately, they weren't thinking about it six months ago when they, they, they should have been. So hopefully it's a lesson for people in the East that just because it doesn't happen as often, it's still possible. Hey, Chip, that's funny. It's a good segue right into, uh, I was reading an article today from the, the South Carolina Forestry Commission, and they, they put out an article stating that they just didn't have the staff right away to get on top of the fire as soon as it happened. Uh, and then, of course, time goes by before you get the federal agencies and, and all the other folks involved with it. And Scotty, you probably know more about that because you were directly involved with some of the emergency management. But uh, tell us a little bit about how response time is so important. How, how does response time occur? I mean, you have your local fire departments, of course. Then it has to go to state immediately. Then if it's too big, for, for everyone there to, to sort of contain, what happens from there? How fast does the word travel to get help and uh, response to the situation? Yeah, that's really dependent on the area and those relationships. I assume that, um, you know, because that's national forest in there, isn't it? I think the, is it Natalis or how do you pronounce that? Natahela. Natahela. Some uh, this may get me in trouble. I, I just want to. So I hope it doesn't. But some of the fire was on Forest Service land, and some of it was on state land. And then they like to have a fight about whose fire it is um, and who's going to fight the fire. And it becomes a big argument between the feds and the state. And before you know it, two or three days are completed without knowing who's going to fight the fire. And so, Chip, you may have seen experience like that as well. <laughs> Well, I, I also don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> uh, I know from our state standpoint, you know, we are a very, we have a lot of experience to fire. It's all prescribed fire, but it's not big fires like this. So the relationships weren't there. And so when we had that large fire last year, it was a learning curve from the get-go. And it was a big struggle between emergency management and say um, the forest service, the, the Kansas forest service. Uh, unfortunately, that was probably the case for a lot of these states is that it was something new for them. They had to learn how to work with each other in ways that they hadn't really needed to before. Um, and so, you know, that that'll greatly reduce the time to response. When I was reading about the Gatlin Booker fire, I, they tried a direct attack and it was just in too rough a terrain. And, you know, safety of human safety comes first. 
And so when they had that many fires and it was small fire and inaccessible terrain, do you try to send firefighters up there to get hurt or do you let the fire come out to you somewhere where you can handle it? And that seemed to be what, that's what they were doing in Gatlinburg is let the fire come out to a point where they can manage it off the roads. Fortunately, that meant it overlapping with the strong wind event. <laughs> so it just, it, it, it's the fire manager's responsibility to really decide how much action to put into it. Um, and that's going to vary by region. I have two final questions. I'm going to throw it back to Scotty to wrap up everything. Uh, a lot of, something we saw a lot this year was detecting these fires on the MODIS imagery and the VERS imagery. Talk a little bit about those, how they differ, and then how they should be used. Well, I always get confused with MODIS and the VERS. They're essentially the same. I think the MODIS was a replacement of the VERS or maybe vice versa. Um, but those are polar orbiting satellites, so you only get one two passes you get two passes a day um the big talk now is goes is goes is going to have the same kind of and it already does but it's going to be at a higher resolution now it's going to be i think at two kilometer resolution with one minute data um so that's going to be a huge driver for determining wildfires in fact they're talking about it out here to, to uh like the paper just got released too from oklahoma about um using goes to detect fires, then to notify the fire agency that there's a fire out there. So that would work really well if some places out in Western US where there's no one to check the fire. Um, so MODIS inverters work out real well if you happen to have a pass timed just right where the fire is hot and you can actually see it. Um, it's limited by you know, obviously a resolution. So the the, the hopes are that GOES is operational as soon as possible and they can utilize that one minute data. I can tell you, I remember someone mentioned, I don't remember exactly who it was, but when we were at the GOES broadcasters workshop, someone mentioned that they put GOES 14 in the mode that GOES 16 will be in, in that one minute scan. And they actually spotted a fire on the GOES imagery before the local fire department knew about it. It was that fast of a response. So some exciting stuff to uh, come down the road. Last question, if someone wants to learn more about fire, fire weather, you know, fire safety, what's some websites and stuff they can check out? Oh, I wasn't playing this question. Um, I'm in a unique position. <laughs> I, you know, most, most incident meteorologists are with the National Weather Service, and I am not. I'm with uh, Kansas State University. So um, for fire weather, stuff it's it's really hit and miss if you ever want to look at spot forecast you can go to their the weather service spot forecast page it's weather.gov spot um yeah i'm trying to think of other good it's scraping together a lot of resources and bringing them together <laughs> smaller resources um you can go to any predictive services web page uh the united states is split into i think six geographic uh, coordination centers so you can look up just Google predictive services and find your, I think that that's the Southern region is what they call that area down there. Um, there's the, the Northeast and then the Midwest. And, um, then the Rocky mountain region is where I am located in. Um, other than that, I believe there's a national weather service incident meteorologist page, but I don't think there's too many tools on that. So there, how about from like a learning standpoint? Like, are there like comment modules or anything that, yeah, that you could Yeah, you could take the, you could look at the basic 190 class, um, which is introduction to fire behavior, I believe. Um, that's a comment module. It replicates a certificate course. If you take one S130 and S190, um, you can get your red card and you can go out in wildfires with that. Um, then from 190, there's a 290, which is, um, intro to fire weather and then there's 390 which is advanced fire behavior um, so you can take all those courses I believe well you can't you can take 190 and 290 on comment okay very cool well we appreciate your time I'll toss it back to Scotty to wrap up everything here yeah chip we appreciate it uh, share your social media if we can uh, if some of our followers here are watching on a rebroadcast want to get in touch with you yeah sorry I tried to get the logo to work but I kept getting a 404 um, <laughs> my my Twitter is the main thing um, is at wx underscore chip. That's C H I P. Um, 
And that, that's primarily the best way to contact me. You can always send me an email to Christopher.a.redmond at gmail.com. Very cool. And Chip's a great follower. He's out there in the plains. He'll get storm pictures and um, pictures of fires and stuff. He's a great follow on Twitter. So make sure you go follow him. And we appreciate you coming on. And we hope you have a Merry Christmas. Hey, you too. Thank you. All right, guys, thanks for, uh, for watching tonight. From all of us here at the Carolina Weather Group, we hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a, a good New Year. Um, be safe out there and enjoy time with your family and friends. And we'll see you back on January the 4th with Capital Weather Gang meteorologist Jason Samenow. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Merry Christmas.